So we've been uh, thinking together and talking about uh, hope and about the place that God would have hope fill in our personal lives. The desire that God has for us to have hearts that are filled with hope. And uh, we started out, and I thought we should just remind ourselves in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13, uh, where the Apostle Paul, this is just a great verse, isn't it? Uh, The Apostle Paul says, may the God of hope, God calls himself the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. I mean, who doesn't want joy and peace in their life, right? And then he goes on, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, taking God at his word, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I may abound in hope. If God had his way, we would be abounding in hope. We would be overflowing in hope. We would be so optimistic when we think about the future that we would be abounding, you know, in hope if God had his way. And so the God of hope, uh, while he would have us abound in hope, knows that you can't hope in something you don't know about. How can you put your hope in something that you don't know, right? It's impossible. And so God has revealed to us. uh, We can't really know the future unless God reveals it to us, and God has chosen to reveal it to us in his word. And so uh, we've been studying these passages about hope and seen uh, how much the hope that God offers us is tied to the second coming of Jesus to Jesus' return. So many of the promises come to life uh, when Jesus comes back. And so uh, I thought, suppose uh, we had to complete this sentence. Suppose we had to complete this sentence. The only hope for the world is blank. The only hope for the world is. I hear politicians today, when I watch the news, say, the only hope for the world is me. Just vote for me and I'll fix the world, right? Don't you hear that? Uh, I hear these politicians say that. I hear uh, environmentalists say, the only hope for the world is the Green New Deal. And unless we do the Green New Deal, we're all gonna perish. I hear military people say, the only hope for the world is nuclear disarmament. Otherwise, we're all going to destroy each other and it's going to be over. Uh, Lately, I hear engineers and scientists saying, the only hope for the world is AI, artificial intelligence, right? And that's what's going to save the world. I hear pundits from different, you know, uh, sectors. Um, The only hope for the world is a one-world government. The only hope for the world is a one-world economy. The only hope for the world is a one-world religion. And in fact, we've seen that the Bible tells us that man is going to try for that, that uh, one-world government, but it's not going to turn out so good. It's not going to work. In fact, Jesus said it's going to turn into a great tribulation, right? But I want to point out that there is a yearning, there is a quest for a better world. There's a quest for a better world, right? There's an uneasiness with the world the way it is, and there's kind of a consciousness, um, a quest, if you will, for a better world. Barb and I, um, 
long story short, but Barb and I uh, came to know uh, the ambassador from Ethiopia to the United Nations. And uh, one time, several years back now, uh, he invited me to go to the United Nations with him and he was going to show me around. And so I went and uh, it was quite an experience, pretty neat. Um, But uh, outside of the United Nations building in New York City, uh, there's kind of a garden and in the garden there's a statue. Uh, And that statue is of a man and he's got a hammer in his hand like this, a big hammer up in the air, right? And, uh, and he's beating on a sword, okay, and he's making it into a plow. Because one of the missions of the United Nations is to bring peace to the world. And uh, it was a Russian artist that did that. I remember, I don't remember his name. But um, he was trying to depict in this uh, sculpture, this statue, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And I remember seeing that statue, you know, and thinking, wouldn't that be a great world to live in? A world where nobody talks about war. Think about all the different wars that are going on that we're conscious of even today. You know, and Jesus in Matthew 24 said, you know, you're always going to be hearing about wars and rumors of wars and so forth. What would it be like to live in a world where there's not going to be war anymore? And we have this kind of quest, right? We know that it could be better. Uh, But the United Nations is failing to pull it off, right? Uh, The UN has been unable to make it happen. And uh, the UN was in the uh, news again this past week. Uh, with uh, some more problems, you know, and so forth. And I want to say that, you know, the Lord alone can bring peace. There's not going to be peace until the Lord comes back. So this whole passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, says this, just a couple of verses. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, And shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations will flow to it. Imagine that. Um, Jerusalem, talking about, all the nations coming to Jerusalem. Why are all the nations coming to Jerusalem? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 2, or 3. Many people shall come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. How would you like to live in a world where all the nations of the world are sending diplomats to Jerusalem to sit in front of the Lord and learn and go back and bring it to, you know, their nations? What a great world that would be. Start to envision, you know, what Isaiah is telling us here. Um, For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people. How cool would that be? Hey, I don't get along with you. You don't get along with me. Let's go talk to the Lord and have him straighten us out so that we can be friends. You know, I was watching a football game, and, you know, these guys, they're like brutal to each other, right? And and after the game, they're hugging. How'd that happen? I mean, they're just doing their best to knock each other's block off. And then after the game, they're going over and hugging each other, you know? Um, So imagine a world like that. 
where we could go to the Lord and the Lord would make it right between us and we would be able to uh, hug each other uh, with every level of our being. The hope of the world is a person and uh, the end uh, of prophecy is a person. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. The hope of the world is God in the person of Jesus. Now, all through the Bible, I want to suggest to you this morning, there is a thread, there is a promise that someday a golden age will come into the world. Someday there will be this golden age in the world. Another passage here, um, again, Isaiah. There's many places we could turn, but uh, Isaiah chapter 4. With righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with, a rod, with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked, right? The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. God tries to give us a picture of a world that'd be very different than the world that we live in right now. And so my question to you this morning is, do you believe it? Are you looking forward to being a part someday of a world where everything is right instead of everything being wrong? Where you turn on the news and all the news is, is all the things that God's doing in the lives of people and in the nations and how they're working out their stuff and all of that is happening and Jesus is getting all the credit, right? Are you, do you believe in a world like that? I think that there are a lot of... Uh, people uh, that, uh, you know, kind of think, wouldn't it be great if there could be such a thing as a magic kingdom, if you've been to Disney World? I mean, wouldn't it be nice if, if there really was a magic kingdom someday, and guess what? You know what? Everything would be just right, and you wouldn't have to worry about the uncertainties of life. You wouldn't have to worry about, you know, the trials that come and the, uh, all the issues that are part of our everyday lives. Um, kind of the age of Aquarius, you know. Uh, President Bush, uh, back in the day, envisioned a new world order, he called it, a new world order. It's just about everybody kind of realizes something's wrong with the world, and uh, we Christians, uh, I think we dream about, wouldn't it be nice if we could live in a world that was kind of like the Garden of Eden before sin and Satan and the fall? Wouldn't it be cool if we could have been Adam and Eve and we would have had the chance to have, you know, this uh, Garden of Eden type of uh, environment? Well, the Bible, I think, actually describes in very uh, wonderful detail how God actually is directing history toward a defined end. It's not just nations, you know, just going in circles and just repeating history and so on and so forth. But uh, there is an end, a golden age that God says will satisfy uh, the deepest desires of our hearts to be able to live in a way that God originally intended. And so when you watch the news and you think about the possibility of this, uh, you kind of ask the question, you know, how is that ever going to happen? Right? How is that ever going to? Can you envision that? And people say, well, I can't envision that, so you don't believe that it's actually going to come someday. But I'll tell you how it's going to happen, and you already know. Every Christmas we read about how it's going to happen. In Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child's been born. Unto us a son has been given. Listen to this, and the government is going to be on his shoulders someday. Oh, 
That's how it's going to happen. The government's going to be on his shoulders someday, and his name around the whole world, they're going to be calling him the Wonderful Counselor. He's got the answer to every dilemma that you can think of, right? The Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. Is that what people talk about him today? Whenever people have a problem, is the first course of thought like, I'm going to go to the Wonderful Counselor and see what he has to say about my situation. It's not the way the world operates today, but someday, right? We're reading it here. His name's going to be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Listen to this, the Prince of Peace. Is that today? No, not in our world today, but it's going to be. And listen, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Imagine that. It just keeps getting better. It doesn't get worse. It gets better. Okay, And on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. And I love this last line. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. I'm sorry, folks, but mankind cannot bring about that kind of world. But the zeal of our God, the passion of our God, the power of our God will bring this about someday. And so we look forward to this. It's the source of hope. Um, and so there are many places in Scripture we could go. Psalm 2, you know, God just comes right out in the psalm and says, I have placed my king on my holy hill, Mount Zion. You know, God's like, just listen, world. This is where it's going. You know, um, um, in Revelation, we've, we've talked now uh, quite a bit about... Uh, the seven last years, right, that are talked about uh, in Jesus and Matthew 24, the so-called Olivet Discourse, because it was on the Mount of Olives where Jesus uh, and his disciples had this conversation. And we've seen that it's been decreed in the book of Daniel, actually, the last seven years by God. And we've gone through all of that, and we've seen that there's a number of parts to that, right? There's what Jesus calls the beginning of birth pangs. That's the first three and a half years. Then there's what Jesus calls the great tribulation, where the Antichrist tries to take over the world, and there's all kinds of trouble, you know? And then we've seen that the rapture of the church uh, comes and uh, cuts that great tribulation short, and the church is taken off the earth, and then we see that the final thing is the day of the Lord, where the judgment of God comes against everything that's evil. And uh, part of that judgment is uh, when you get to Revelation and it gets explained, there are seven angels with seven trumpets, and there are seven uh, uh, judgments that come down on the earth, and you can read them. And when we get to the very seventh, the last one of those trumpets, part of the day of the Lord, uh, we read this in chapter 11, Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, and this is cool, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. There is a day coming when there's going to be a huge clash, right, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world which the Bible tells us Satan is the small g God of this world. And when that clash happens, we don't have to wonder who's going to win, right? The kingdom of God is going to take over the kingdom of this world. There's going to be a new heavens, a new earth. There are all kinds of promises related to this period of time. And so 
Uh, Revelation 19 uh, is the description of Jesus coming back to the earth. And uh, as we heard part of that from Mike this morning. And then the very next chapter, Revelation chapter 20, talks about a period of time that lasts a thousand years. Let me just read the first seven verses. You'll notice in uh, Revelation chapter 20 uh, that six times in seven verses, the thousand years is mentioned, okay? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years threw him into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Until a thousand years were ended, after that he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years." And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations one more time and so on. So six times in seven verses, thousand years, thousand years. Uh, we call it the millennium. Uh, millennium is just a word that's made up of two different words, milli, which means thousand, and annum, which means years. So it just simply means thousand years, the millennium. And so there's this thousand-year period of time, and I'm going to suggest to you that after that seven years of, that we've been looking at and thinking comes this thousand-year period of time in which Jesus comes back to the earth and reigns over the whole world, and it's kind of like we get to live in a situation that is, this is what it would have been had sin not ruined everything. Satan is bound and thrown into the pit. He, he doesn't have any influence uh, over the course of that period of time. And uh, things are very different than what they are now. And Jesus rules over all the nations, just like Isaiah said, uh, from Jerusalem. And uh, the fulfillment, you know, of many of the prophecies, or of all of the prophecies, the Old Testament take place uh, in this thousand-year period. So it's kind of like the end of one era, our era, and then the beginning of a new era that lasts for a thousand years, if you take the Bible uh, literally true. Um, so again, uh, the kingdom of God is coming to overtake the kingdom of the world. Our prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, will finally someday become a reality. I believe that's why God taught us to include that in the way that we pray, that we have the end in mind and we think in, we're thinking about where we're going and it helps us then to keep perspective on everything that happens to us uh, up until that time. Now, as you might imagine, right, uh, we Christians have different views on the millennium, on this thousand year period. 
So I wanted to uh, suggest to you that there are three primary views about the millennium. One, there is no such thing as the millennium, okay? Uh, that's called amillennialism. Two, we're already living in the millennium right now, and Jesus is going to come at the end of the millennium. When Jesus comes, that'll be the end of the millennium. It's called post-millennialism, right? Makes sense. And then the third view is just pre-millennialism, which means Jesus comes before the millennium, the thousand-year period, uh, starts and begins. So just think with me a little bit about these three um, uh, positions here. Uh, amillennialists, um, you know, the, the letter A negates what comes after it, right? Like if, uh, if, if I say, uh, oh, that person's a theist, you know what that means? It means that person believes in God. If you put an A in front of it, you say that person's an atheist, what does that mean? Just the opposite. It just negates, right? If I say that person's moral, you know, and then I put an A in front of it, I say, oh, that person's amoral. A moral person believes in right and wrong. An amoral person doesn't, right? So when you talk about millennialism and this thousand-year period of time, an amillennialist is somebody who doesn't believe uh, that there is a thousand-year period of time. And uh, they believe, right, amills believe that the kingdom of God is spiritual, not physical. It's spiritual, and there's an element of truth in this, right? Right now, you and I are a part of the kingdom of God. Uh, it's a spiritual kingdom. It's the rule of Christ in our hearts, right? Uh, there's an element of truth. And you can see where amillennials get their ideas and, and how this came about and so forth. And in addition to that, amillennials um, pretty much believe uh, that the promises of God to Israel were conditional, okay, and Israel didn't meet the conditions, and so the promises of God have now gone to the church. They've been taken away from Israel. There is no future for Israel. God has uh, set Israel aside, and God's focus is on the church. Uh, our millennialists, for the most part, embrace that uh, uh, notion. Uh, most millennialists uh, tend to think that God is done with Israel, and uh, the church has sort of taken Israel's place. Um, that's called replacement theology. And, uh, and then uh, also uh, millennialists, um, uh, you should know, has its roots uh, way back in the fourth century after Jesus was here um, in the Roman church. Uh, really, you can trace it back. The whole idea can be traced back to Augustine of Hippo um, in the fourth century uh, in the Roman church. And um, there was this uh, kind of anti-Semitism that began right there, uh, not wanting Israel in any way to be revived, but the church, the Roman church especially, uh, to take the place of Israel and to be the apple of God's eye. They would actually read, you know, where uh, God said, Israel's the apple of my eye, and say, no, the church is the apple of God's eye now because Israel, you know, uh, didn't live up to the conditions. And it's true, right? You can understand um, Many of the, uh, you know, all through Moses with the law, everything was conditional. You know, God says, I'm going to bless the socks off of you if you'll just do this. And then they don't do that, right? And they keep falling and God keeps restoring and so forth. But prior to Moses is the promise that God made to Abraham, right? That I'm going to make a nation out of you and I'm going to bless 
all the world, and that promise is unconditional because that promise is about Jesus coming out of the nation of Israel and being the savior of the world, okay? So that's amillennialism. Uh, the second view is what's called post-millennialism, and uh, here the idea, believe, these folks believe that we are living in the millennium right now, that the millennium is the period of time between the first and second coming of Jesus, and that we are living, but that the kingdom is spiritual, not physical. And uh, that that period of time uh, is kind of an indefinite period of time. They don't take the thousand years to be literal. It'd be like you and I uh, maybe saying, you know, that's not going to happen for a million years. And we don't mean a literal million. We just mean for a real long time. Well, these folks kind of take that thousand-year period uh, to be a real long time. And it's just like a thousand years represents a big long time. And then they go to Peter and Peter says, a thousand years is, is a day with the Lord and a day is a thousand years and, and make that whole case. Um, and so post-millennialism. And this view believes um, that the gospel of Jesus Christ will change you know, the world. That if the church does its job, the church will saturate the world with the gospel and the gospel will change people's lives, and the kingdom of God will come about by the efforts of the church. Now, I'd like to think that that would happen. However, 2,000 years of church history makes this a pretty optimistic view, right? Um, and so when you think about it, uh, this is kind of neat that you know, part of the church's job, although I don't know uh, if you can back it up biblically, is to bring in this golden age so that the world is ready, and then when Jesus comes at the end of it, everything will be set up for him to reign and to rule. But it's our job to get it done. And so that's uh, post-millennialism. And uh, again, um, it's pretty optimistic, I think. Uh, Second Timothy, you know, uh, I think there's some uh, passages of Scripture that uh, kind of challenge uh, this thought. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. And there's a whole list of things about what's going to happen in the last days. And it goes worse. It doesn't get better, right? And then uh, continuing in uh, Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, you continue in what you have learned and uh, believed and so on. So, you know, there are passages of scripture that talk about the world needing, you know, uh, this radical transformation, but that the church isn't really in the picture that brings it about, okay? And then there's the last view, the premillennial view, and this view um, believes that Jesus will come at the beginning, before the millennium begins. He will come right after the judgment of God. Revelation 19 uh, shows him coming, you know, on a great white uh, stallion and uh, so on. And you can read that. And then chapter 20 is all about this millennial period of time. And that Jesus himself will establish and then govern over a literal, physical kingdom on earth. And uh, it will include all the nations, and it will fulfill the promises that God made to Israel. Satan will be bound. The effects of sin will be reversed. People will live longer, according to the Bible. Animals will stop killing each other. 
peace and security will become a reality. Uh, Basically, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so there are these seven trumpet judgments, uh, part of the day of the Lord, and at the very last one, we see this kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of God. Now, I just want to say, um, there are many, uh, many sincere people uh, today who are caught up in a number of various uh, causes, right, it seems to me. Uh, there's always the ongoing cause for peace, and there are always people marching and people uh, doing what they can to bring about uh, peace, There's people involved in um, efforts to bring about equity and uh, to uh, discover, you know, uh, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And there's a a desire to see people uh, be included. There's a desire for justice to be done for all. There's a desire for an ecologically perfect Garden of Eden-like environment with no pollution. Uh, There's a desire to see the world produce an abundance. There's a desire for the world to be righteous and let's live by laws and and so forth. And uh, all of these are legitimate desires of people. Everybody's on this quest for this golden age of the world. And these are opportunities, it seems to me, for the church to speak into the lives of these people who are passionate about these causes and say, hey, I'm with you and I'm looking forward to a day when the Lord is going to come back and there is going to be this golden age on the planet. It's just that, you know, if you're going to try to bring it about by man, it's not going to happen. But I have a God who has promised that these quests and this desire for a better world and a better life and a golden age is a legitimate desire and that someday he will come back and achieve um, what man cannot achieve. The idea that man can achieve this is a false hope. And we have the true hope. And so it seems to me like one thing that ought to be true is that the church ought to start to be an example, right, to the world of how a better age could actually come because we are at peace with each other and we are concerned for the environment and we don't throw garbage around and we are concerned about justice and we want, treat, we want to include everybody. There's nobody who walks through this door that we would say, sorry, you don't belong here. We understand, I like to call it the longing for belonging. Everybody wants to belong. And here's God saying, listen, I created you, I love you, I want you to be in my family, you can belong. And so if the church would be the church, the world would look and say, you know, there's a little piece of the magic kingdom in that church. They understand where we're all going and they're getting ready for it and they're practicing and they're kind of getting there. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, and I'll be done. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're waiting for that. We want that, right? Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful that you're our God again, and we're so thankful that we have this sure hope of you coming back someday and showing the world, Father, how you intended this life to be 
in spite of the fact that Satan and sin came and ruined things, uh, you are still in control, you're still sovereign, you still have the power, and someday you will demonstrate it, and just as we've said before, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus is Lord. Amen.